0: You may be seated. I'm Mike McNichols, and it's my privilege to be with you this morning. I notice that Alan always gets the really long readings. The gospel reader gets kind of heavy after a while, doesn't it? Yeah. But but well done, thank you. What an interesting gospel text that is. Uh, When you really stop and think about it, it's pretty heavy. It really, I mean, it really is. There's all this stuff about illness and death and a body possibly decomposing in a tomb and all the things that that come out of that. I, I think sometimes we become so accustomed to these stories we we forget the intensity of them. This is this is a heavy one. It, uh, it sort of causes my mind to go to a Swedish TV mystery series I've watched where everything about it is gloomy. The, the people are gloomy and sad. The weather is gloomy and sad and it's broken only by like cold rainy showers. And there's no cheery ending at the end, and it's even worse if you forget to turn on the subtitles. Now, our gospel text today does not leave us there, I'm glad to say. Uh, there is something remarkable that happens in the culmination of the story. But the journey there is, is a tough one. Um, Jesus gets the message about his friend Lazarus, and instead of heading straight over to Lazarus' home, he, he waits a couple of days. Uh, Thomas. We know him, he of Doubting Thomas fame says, well, okay, let's go, but we're all going to die if we do. Not a real cheery prospect. And both Mary and Martha individually suggest that, that maybe Jesus has a little bit of culpability here in the death of their brother. Uh, Lord, if you had been here. And there's a soundtrack to this whole scene. It's the, the wailing and the mourning of those who have gathered to grieve. And you can tell that that Jesus himself feels the weight of this. He has stepped into it, and it it weighs on him as it weighs on everybody else. He's surrounded by people who are in deep pain. And Mary and Martha are are dear to him, and as they walk together to the tomb, Jesus breaks down, and he weeps. And I have to wonder, what was going through the minds of, of the disciples as they trailed along behind on this short journey to the tomb uh, they were aware that Jesus knew about Lazarus' illness and yet he, he did not alter his plans. He didn't go straight to Bethany. He waited a couple of days. He even claimed to know that this particular illness, he said, would not lead to death. Except that it did lead to death. So did they see this as a kind of, of flaw in the life of the person that they had believed was flawless? Mary and Martha's words, uh, Lord, if, uh, if you had been here. No, no matter what Jesus understood about the ultimate outcome of Lazarus' death, the words had to sting coming from them, coming from the ones whom Jesus loved. And maybe the women didn't know. Maybe they didn't know that Jesus had made the decision to to wait a couple of days before, before coming. And their words simply spoke of their confidence in Jesus' healing works, works that would have rescued their brother had Jesus been there. Or their words could have come from despair and confusion, suggesting a subtext. Lord, why weren't you here when we needed you? Why were you somewhere else? And while it's likely that Lazarus had died even by the time Jesus got the message, the sisters still regretted his absence with them. So it's a tough scene. Uh, as, we, as we sit with the text for a while, we might find ourselves able to relate a bit to Mary and Martha in their grief. I mean, How often have we looked at events in our own lives, our own pasts, and regretted that, that we didn't do one thing or another thing. And had we actually done things in the right way, then, then certain outcomes would not have taken place. Or if other people had just done what they were supposed to do. If they had taken different ways, then, then maybe these sad events in my life would not have occurred. And those are difficult memories. They're sometimes very dark memories. Because they are etched into our histories and, and we cannot go back in time and change them. Well, people can allow these these written histories of their pasts to establish what they think are inevitabilities for the future. They might believe that since the events of the past can't be altered, then the future will always be an inevitable outcome of a difficult past. Because that is just how things work, or so the thinking goes. To the extreme, I've talked to people who desperately fear that because one of their parents passed away at a certain age that they too will pass at that age, and they even have a date on the calendar, oddly enough. It's convenient, I guess, for planning purposes. I've known ones who who feared that because their parents were divorced at a certain point in time that they too would be destined to have their own marriages lost, because in their minds the past somehow, in some strange way, dictates an inevitable future. Mary and Martha seem to have framed their understanding of their brother's death around their experiences of the past. Uh, Death was much more up close and personal in uh, first century Palestine than it really is for us. To a large degree, we are shielded from the kinds of effects of death that would have been common to them in that time. And while we all understand that our lives are on this unfortunate trajectory from birth to the ultimate reality of death, the people of the ancient world, while understanding the same thing, were visited by it on a routine basis. People often, when they died, would would do so in their own homes, and family members would care for their bodies and prepare them for burial. So it wasn't that death was a surprise. Uh, It wasn't a surprise to the sisters. It was the timing of the death that broke their hearts. For them, their, their brother died too soon. And the other experience of the past that that might have framed their thinking, was, that, was what they had come to understand in Jesus' works of healing. Up to this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus had, had healed people. There were miraculous things that had occurred, but thus far in that narrative, nobody had been raised from the dead. They'd all been alive when Jesus ministered to them. So it would be reasonable for Mary and Martha to expect that death was the final boundary that even Jesus couldn't break. It was ultimate. It had to happen. And so it makes sense that they would say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Instead of, Lord, now that you're here, now I don't want to pick on Mary and Martha too much because I kind of relate to this. Maybe you do too. I have all kinds of limitations in the way that I expect things to work based on how I have experienced life in the past, and I've got limitations based on how I experience life right now. I just, that's just my public confession, and I'm hoping you're kind of feeling it here. Uh, as I get older, I expect to have an increasingly decentralized role in certain aspects of my life where I felt like I was more involved, because that's just how things work. I expect that our political parties will be more focused on gaining power than on virtuous governance because that's just how things work. I expect that economic policies will help help some and hurt some because that's just how economics work. I expect to wake up every morning to a new day. I expect that one day, like it or not, my life will end in death. I've got all kinds of expectations based on my past experiences that frame my understanding of today. And probably you do too. Now it would be a big surprise to me if any of those things had a different outcome than what I expect. That would be a big surprise. The way that I see the world is formed by many of those expectations and I think that works pretty much that way for all of us. In our reading from Romans chapter 8, Paul describes the the problem of these expectations in this way. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Well, throughout the gospels, Jesus violates people's expectations all the time. It's Just common to the story. Uh, While people expected that certain illnesses would on occasion resolve themselves, that people would over time get well, what they didn't expect was that they would, would recover instantly at the touch of Jesus. That violated their expectations. It was a good violation, but it violated what they expected nonetheless. But people did recover. And Mary and Martha would have understood that about Jesus. And they would have expected that Jesus could have done it for Lazarus death, no, death was that that final door that locked itself tightly once it was closed. And it all seemed to make sense because that's how things work in the world. That was based on an understanding of how things worked in their context even when Jesus was around. It's kind of curious that um, when Jesus heard about Lazarus' condition, he said, This illness does not lead to death. Uh, Of course, it did lead to death for Lazarus. We have to ask ourselves, was Jesus just wrong? I mean, certainly he says it's for the glory of God, but the illness did lead to death. The guy died. Was Jesus just wrong about the situation and his work of restoring Lazarus to life was just a a fixing of his miscalculation? Well, the word that, that John uses here that we translate as death is a real common Greek word that's translated as Death. Uh, You might want to write that down somewhere. Um, You can write Greek right under it and impress somebody with that. But that word, for them, just like for us, implies something more than just the, the ceasing of someone's bodily functions. It was a word that was not only about the event of death, it was also about the power of death. And the people surrounding Jesus believed in the power of death, and so do we. Uh, Even in in our popular literature and movies, we often personify death as a looming figure, a grim reaper perhaps, that has the power to come into our lives and take life from us. So it's not just that it's an event that happens to us, but it's something that has a power in and of itself. And so we believe in the power of death, The, the history of death has formed our expectations and our expectations are always met. I mean, that's just sort of the bad news for the day. We don't get out of this thing alive, and we understand that. Even when Jesus told Martha that her brother would rise again, the lens through which she viewed reality required her to translate Jesus' assurance in more theological terms, uh, a kind of, of eschatological expectation. And she says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You know, maybe saying that in the same spirit that you might say to someone who tries to bring you comfort by saying, well, Uncle George is in a better place. And you say, yeah, I know. Uh, I mean, it really doesn't sound all that hopeful. Uh, She hears Jesus' words, but she pushes them off into a, a distant, indeterminate, and vaguely hopeful future. And yet, in a way, Martha was right. Lazarus would rise on the last day. But that very day was the last day. It wasn't the last day of the world. It was the last day for the power of death to have the final word. You know, Israel's whole history throughout Scripture... Always seems to be one of distant hope, the ancient prophet Ezekiel describes a a time when Israel had once again forgotten about God is that 's their ultimate sin. they just forget about God, and it resulted in a nation that was characterized by idol worship and and intertribal competition and uh, and ultimately resulted in conquest and exile, being overrun by foreign invaders and the people hauled off into exile. But a prophetic word came to them through Ezekiel, promising that a change that would one day reform the people of God in a dramatic way. And God speaks through the prophet Ezekiel and says, a new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances Then you shall live in the land that I gave to your ancestors, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. The Apostle Paul, in our reading this morning, seems to kind of echo this promise. Granted, the terminology is is moved around a bit, but rather than a future hope, he describes God's work as a present reality and says, But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You know, perhaps we often think of that phrase, in the flesh, as as referring to uh, just bad behavior in general. Growing up in church as a teenager, I didn't have much church background at that point, I came to understand in the flesh as something the grown-ups in our church referred to as carnality, Carnality, yeah, carnality. Usually meant things like drinking and smoking and swearing and dancing, uh, going to movies and of course that carnality of all carnalities, sex. Our denomination even gave us a list of those carnal activities um, and they insisted in their book of polity that we avoid these things that had been written down for us in order to give evidence of our devotion. Imagine their surprise when they learned we just treated them as goals to be reached. <laughs> it's good for kids to have goals, you'd think, you know. But, but in the flesh is something more than just a list of bad behaviors. For the people of, of Jesus' time, the people of Paul's time, it, it would certainly include the misdeeds that are common to human beings. But it was also to see life and faith and and international politics through the eyes of ones who expected the world to be dominated only by the powers of nations and armies and cultural elites. Well, Mary and Martha and all of the mourners who had gathered with them saw the cycle of human life as we all do. They understood about birth and the life that emerges from that. They understood about suffering and inevitably They understood about death. It was just the way things were, and the way that things were seemed to always end in that same place, a place of sorrow and grief. That's what loss produces within us. But Jesus offered a way of hope that was evidenced by the raising of Lazarus. It it was truly a, a sign of the life that was yet to come in that hopeful distant future in the fulfillment of God's kingdom. When Mary and Martha received their brother back into the life that they shared, they could no longer look at things as they did before. Expectation and hope accompanied the new life that had emerged from that tomb. As I think about Paul's words, you are not in the flesh, you are in the spirit, since the spirit of God dwells in you. I cannot help but think how relevant these words are not only to our personal lives, but to our our current context. We are constantly called to put our hope in the powers that we see, the powers that claim to control the world. After all, that's just how things are, right? We're born, we live, there's turmoil, we hear about wars, people suffer, things find temporary resolutions. There's more turmoil, and people die. In the end, the the grave always wins, even if it's kept at bay for a while, because it's just what we expect. But what happens to us when our eyes of flesh are transformed by the light of God's Spirit? It has to be more than echoing Martha's distant hope that one day there will be a resurrection. But for now, suffering and death get to have the last word. Instead, it must be a shared life of faith that not only proclaims that the kingdom of God has indeed come, but also one that demonstrates that present reality by living faithfully as God's people. And that demonstration is one that very often runs counter to the narratives of power that we hear about every single day. To paraphrase a line from one of Eugene Peterson's books, the things that make nations great are not the things that make the kingdom of God great. Jesus' words to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. That was not just a theological abstraction. In the raising of Lazarus, Jesus would enact a sign of what was to come, a sign of hope and promise. It was a sign that the power of death, a a real and ever-present power, would ultimately submit itself to the life-giving touch of Jesus. But this this sign of the kingdom, this raising of the dead, was not simply a, a utilitarian act that somehow bolstered Jesus' claims about his mission in the world. It was a sign of a future hope that was overflowing with compassion and love. When the sisters send their distress message off to Jesus, They identify their brother as the one whom you love, Jesus. That's the one who's suffering. And when Jesus arrives in Bethany, he enters fully into the pain and suffering of the people gathered there, weeping with them as they approach the tomb. In this story, as in many of the texts of the gospel, Jesus shows us the face and the character of God. It is true, this is the God who draws us into the reality of his kingdom right here and right now. But this is also the God who enters fully into our human lives in the person of Jesus, who shares our pain, who shares our expectations of death. If our future hope lies at the end of a road, then it's a road that is paved with the deep love that God has for us. You know, I think the power of death is often fueled by fear. I think fear is what helps that power to stay alive. I I suspect that Mary and Martha's message to Jesus was crafted in the midst of their fear of the, the loss of their brother. Well, we all experience that from time to time. Fear comes and goes in our lives. I understand that, but for some people, fear is a constant companion. It's like a secret friend, a dark secret friend. And our current political climate has just heightened those fears for many people. But it need not be that way for us. As Paul reminds us, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Fear and the expectation of death's power including all the things that we are told that seem to be putting us on death's doorstep every day, those things do not bring life. It's only the Spirit of God that brings life. I kind of wonder about this. I wonder if the, the life-giving reality of God's Spirit, a, a reality that gives us new eyes, new expectations, new hopes, is somehow limited by our fear of the powers that threaten, and even guarantee, death. What if that fear were broken? What what if the power of fear was just drained, no longer allowed to occupy space within our lives? Would we find the kind of life that Paul's describing? Have we asked God, any of us, at various points in our lives to fill us with his spirit, as people often do? But in the process, we've just allowed fear to come along for the ride and occupy the space that we've actually invited God to come into? I've done that. And yet we're told, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. As we close this morning, let's just pause pray together that fear, in whatever form it takes, that little companion that likes to ride along with us through our lives, that it will be broken within us and that the spirit of God will fill that space inside of us and truly bring us his life. Let's pray together. God, many of us come before you with the confession that we have allowed fear to be our constant companion, fear of all kinds of things, and that fear sometimes crafts our engagement with you, with others, with the world around us. And now, with as much willingness as we can muster, we let go of that fear, in fact, turn that fear over to you to do with it as you will, and invite you by your Spirit to occupy the space of our lives, to overwhelm us with your presence, to fill us with your presence, that your spirit will be our constant companion. That is because of your spirit, our eyes will see things anew, and that we will rest in the hope and the promise of the life that you bring in Jesus the Christ. Amen.